0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Parts of New England have been really dry this summer. Just ask Gardner Tim Hind.
2: I haven't gotten any peppers or eggplants. I intended to grow more than this, but just, uh just didn't happen. From the New England News Collaborative,
1: this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We'll look at the impact of drought on homeowners and farmers alike. We'll also consider what national monument status means. President Obama just granted this to nearly 90,000 acres of the north woods of Maine
3: and is considering doing the same for miles of ocean canyons off the coast should these other acts and these public procedures be overridden with the stroke of an imperial pen. And it's back
1: to school time, but that means something different for the children of seasonal workers, bringing in the late summer crops.
4: And it's hard like, you know, when you travel, especially when you're a child, but as, you know, as children, they have to go with their parents.
1: We'll visit the Blueberry Harvest School, it's next.
4: Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. It was an unusually dry summer for much of New England. Massachusetts was and still is the hardest hit. Governor Charlie Baker has announced an emergency loan fund to help family farms and other small businesses affected by the drought. Mike Wisseman is feeling the pinch. He grows vegetables on his family's farm on the Connecticut River in Sunderland, Mass.
5: Yeah, we couldn't work the land. We were so busy trying to put out irrigation pipe. We depend on getting second crops in, and we were unable to do probably two or three acres of uh, sweet corn that we would have done, um, and then the planting of summer and
1: Zucchini, that is. Wisseman says he thinks his farm lost tens of thousands of dollars this year. Masoud Hashemi, a researcher at the University of Massachusetts, has been advising farmers on how to get through the drought and how to adapt their farming practices to a changing climate. For Hashemi, it's not about better irrigation systems or hardier crops. He says the
5: key to sustainability is in the soil. Soil is a foundation of living, period, human beings, animals, but also microbes. And so soil needs to be taken care of. And uh, how we manage the soil is the key to the sustainability of farming system and it remains for generations to come.
1: New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman's been reporting on the tentative move among New England farmers to adopt these drought-friendly techniques. She joined me in the studio and we called New Hampshire livestock farmer Bill Fosher to talk soil and water. Jill Kaufman, Bill Fosher, welcome to Next. Thanks, John. Thank you. Jill, I'll ask you, you've been talking to a lot of farmers and a lot of people about this. I mean, what, what have you seen as the impact of the drought across the region?
6: In terms of crops, uh, there's been a shortage of everything. So farmers have lost money because they couldn't um, irrigate their acreage to sell um, to sell beans or tomatoes or eggplant. Um, some farmers, fortunate enough to be able to irrigate, uh, they had some systems, like the really large farmers in um, in Wheatley and Hatfield, Massachusetts, they're potato farmers. Some of them are, you know, they're not necessarily Lay's potato chip farmers, but they're close to it. So they're, they're large. They've had irrigation systems in place, but from what I heard from other farmers, even that wasn't enough uh, to reach all of their fields, because largely, farmers also depend on rain. And as Bill uh, Fosher Told me, told us in our story, uh, Bill, you said, you know, basically you can't wait around anymore for rain. You really have to have a plan. Well, Could you explain about these different practices, uh, including cover crop uh, planting and uh, not tilling or no till, which um, they're old practices uh, in many ways, but they're, they're being looked upon as maybe a way of saving farmers and, and, and putting nutrients back in soil no matter what they're growing?
7: The basic concept is that anytime that you have bare soil, you're running the risk of losing water in, in two directions. One is that any moisture that's in the soil um, will will tend to evaporate out much more rapidly than if you had some vegetation on it. The plants are going to hold water if they're there. If you can just keep something on top of the soil, some sort of a, a mulch or, a, um, or or a crop residue, um, what that does is um, when rain falls, it slows down the rain before it hits the surface of the soil, um, and, and it makes it easier for the soil to absorb the raindrops as they come down. Raindrops falling on dry, dusty soil tend to compact that top layer of soil. You don't think of raindrops as weighing very much, but you know a few billion of them do actually start to add up to something, <laughs> And once that soil is packed down, there's no way for the water to infiltrate into the soil, and it runs off, and it takes a little bit of soil with
8: it every time.
1: Well, Jill, um, the the other thing that you mentioned is is this practice called no-till farming, and and this is something that was honestly news to me. I assumed that what farmers did is they went out and they they tilled their fields, and that was the only way to prepare the soil. But you've been talking to agriculture experts. I've spoken to some in Vermont. And for a number of reasons, this has become something that an awful lot of of farmers are now taking up. And it's an old practice, but it's something that that maybe is gonna help preserve the soil and also help it retain moisture.
6: Yeah, so no-till is one of those sustainable farming practices where farmers essentially don't plow and organic matter builds up, and that's a good thing. The soil takes in more nutrients, and climatologist Mark Svoboda from the U.S. Drought Monitor, and he's in Nebraska, He's been watching this year's drought closely and he told me that organic matter in the soil and that can easily get there from no-till or low-till practices. It's like having a savings account.
2: It allows more water to be stored in the ground. And if the soils aren't managed um, as well as as a farmer next door, you will see significant differences out here between what we call no-till or low-till farming where they don't turn the soil over. They might only do it once. A decade or even sometimes not even that often if there's compaction issue but that not only allows the moisture to be stored and kept for dry times and and not let it be evaporated out as quickly but it also builds up that organic matter which allows that sponge to be thicker to hold more water to get them through the dry times
6: so that's great right that's a good thing but not everyone can do this not everyone can be on board or is willing to be on board no-till or low-till is not so common in the Northeast. It's not practical for some farmers yet. It could be also a natural resistance to change, and some even have called it radical. I've spoken to some farmers, but Mark Svoboda says that is not the case where he lives.
2: Boy, I would say ninety percent of producers in in my part of the country here in the Midwest and the Great Plains are no-till or low-till, no doubt. Um, but it took a long time to show them the benefits of doing that. As you go east, that starts to—that's a newer thing, and that's crazy. Why would you plant corn right into beans? Um, but that's why you're doing it. You're really—you're—you're you're keeping the tr- nutrition, organic matter, and water holding capacity at its maximum extent by using those sort of practices.
6: What I'm looking to find out next story is how practical this is um, for large-scale farmers. Um, this might be fine for somebody with 50 acres or even 500 acres, but um, if this is the way forward, I, I know, and Bill has said this as well, there is resistance to this because it's not it's not always possible um, to, to let your land um, be tended this way. And Bill, can you talk about that a little bit?
7: You know, people are geared up for the more traditional tillage systems where you plow down your cover crop and reincorporate the um, the residue that way and then you have a nice smooth seed bed that you can plant directly into. Um, so it would require not only a change in philosophy but a change in equipment and a, and a fairly substantial capital investment in a lot of cases. <laughs>
1: And Jill, as, as we've learned, in the state of Vermont, the farmers there are being encouraged to do low-till or no-till farming in part because of these nutrients that are in the soil are being released and running off into Lake Champlain and are actually causing problems in, in the water there as well. But as we continue to talk about drought, how much do we know, Jill, about droughts like these, extended droughts? Uh, being part of climate change. The fact is, is that all across America, we've seen drier and drier summers. I, I read this week that Boston had its driest summer ever. We've had our hottest summer in America ever. Is climate change part of what's driving this?
6: This is climate change, uh, Bill. You said this to me that you know this is climate change in action. It's these torrential rains followed by incredible long periods of time without rain, um, and it's a pattern that Mark Svoboda also spoke about from the U.S. Drought Monitor. They're out at an extension school at uh, the University of Nebraska, and uh, they you know they they watch they watch this land because of of for numerous stakeholders, right? Farmers included, and apparently. Um, farmland, um, cropland, and forest have their own signatures when it comes to drought on these satellite maps.
1: What did you learn from the farmers you talked to about how much this dry season has cost them?
6: Well, uh, again, just in a small sampling, farmers did lose tens of thousands of dollars. Some did, you know, individually on on relatively, mm, not small farms, but moderate-sized farms. So. That means, uh, for instance, they couldn't plant a field because they couldn't get water to it. The water that they needed to use had to go onto fields that were already planted so they could pick and sell those crops. I'm thinking about Mike Wisseman in Sunderland, Massachusetts, who's got um, who's diversified his farming in some ways. He's made um, a corn maze that comes up now, and people are going to it now. He has a, his son, who's the next generation of a 10-generation farm, started a CSA on the farm. But they're not selling in the... Um, Hampshire County area because there's enough CSAs. They're going to Boston. Farmers are learning that in order to survive, if they can't do what they do, they need to do some of something else if they want to stay in agriculture. It's a it's a big question, Bill. But I wonder if like if there is a drought-proof farm, if you can build it, um, and if that goes back to money again.
7: As far as a drought-proof farm, I think there is no such thing anywhere. I mean, we can um, we we see that in the in the california situation where they're starting to you know they've got their irrigation which they have to have as a normal thing even when they don't have a drought the way they feel a drought is that they don't have the water to put on the crops even though they have all of the infrastructure they still don't have the water um so really when it comes down to it if the if the water cycle is disrupted um there's not really a whole lot that you can do um other than to sort of change your, your paradigm um, and and just decide I'm going to set up my farm so that if we have a year when we only have 40% of the normal rainfall, I can get through it. And if we have two years in a row where we only have 40% of the rainfall, I can also get through that. And the third year, maybe I need to really change up what I'm doing, but I'll have some lead time to think that through. Um, And in terms of, you know, crop production, that probably is going to mean more irrigation and different kinds of irrigation. You know, uh, vegetable farmers are starting to switch over to drip irrigation, which um, uses a lot less water than overhead irrigation. And that's going to probably make a big difference for, for some of the small and medium vegetable producers it starts to get pretty fussy when you get into bigger acreages um to lay down drip tape for hmm. for every you know row of crops that you're growing but um you know it may be something that we end up having to do
1: uh, jill the last thing for you i mean so much of what we talked about with bill is about really old-fashioned farming techniques some of which are coming back in into vogue these are a lot of things that people who've been working the land for decades have learned over time but You've also been talking to people about new technologies that could really help farmers in the future. When we just recently did our series about um, clean energy, we heard an awful lot about weather prediction and whether or not that could be the key toward producing more sustainable, renewable energy. Because we'd know when the sun would shine and we know when the wind would blow, and it seems as though the same thing could really help farmers in a time like this.
6: I don't know. I got to say, there's there's some basics here. There's water, there's soil, um, and there's how you take care of the crops once they're up if this is we're talking crop but also pasture land and, and uh, you know this, this impacts people like Bill Fosher in New Hampshire. You can't change, you can't make it rain unless you see the clouds, right? But you can, in the small and medium farms, maybe, if it's legal, build ponds that you can collect water in. Those ponds could still dry up if it doesn't rain. You maybe can collect water in ditches. Um, so, so, again, I think that some of these are actually more old than new. Now, the young farmers are beginning to hothouse right away. That's a technology, and that's something that might be... Um, um, built up with solar panels or, you know, or something else that is part of a green energy system. And out in a field far, you know, far from a main farmhouse, those farmers said, we, we plan ahead. We, we are working all the time on having plans. So I, I think it's very hard for um, non-farmers like myself to, to necessarily say um, what these practices, new practices could be. I think a lot of them are in use. I think a drought is really hard um, to get through.
1: Uh, Jill Kaufman is a reporter for New England Public Radio. She's been covering the effects of the drought in New England. Thanks so much, Jill. Thank you, John. It's really great to be here. And thanks also to Bill Fosher. He's a livestock farmer at Edgefield Farm in New Hampshire, and he's also coordinator for Granite State Grazers Association. Bill, thanks so much, and best of luck throughout the rest of the season.
7: All right. Thank you. Have a good day.
1: It's not just farmers who have been affected by this drought. Residents in many Massachusetts towns have been told to limit watering their lawns and gardens. But as WBUR reporter Shannon Dooling found out, the rules might be different on the other side of the town line.
9: That's the sound of a sprinkler system dousing a lush green lawn in Tewksbury. Marie Robinson and her husband, Bill, have lived in the house on Whipple Road for 50 years. I hate to tell you how many people have stopped to tell us how nice that grass looks. <laughs> here in Tewksbury, residents can still irrigate their lawn, water their flowers, and even fill up a kiddie pool, if they like. But less than half a mile away, just over the line into Ricca, it's a different story.
2: I was going to take you out here and show you my garden.
9: Walking across nearly an acre of scorched grass, Tim Hind says he's lived in his family's big farmhouse on this property since 1950. He can't recall ever seeing the land this parched.
2: I haven't gotten any peppers or eggplants, very few tomatoes. I intended to grow more than this, but just, uh, just didn't happen.
9: Under Bill Rica's water ban, Hind can water his vegetables by hand only. The same goes for anyone keeping livestock. But that's it. Any other outside water use in Bill Rica is prohibited. So why can Hind's neighbors, three houses down in Tuxbury, continue watering their perennials? It comes down to water sources and state permits.
8: Unfortunately, we have more permits than we have time to review and update them in a timely manner.
9: Duane Lavangi heads up the state's water management program. Those permits he refers to are required by any entity, be it a town or a golf course, that uses over 100,000 gallons of water a day. The permits have built-in triggers, indicating when to start curbing water use. For example, some restrictions are triggered when stream flow drops below a certain level. Problem is, not all permits are up to date.
8: They are 20-year permits, and we're updating them as quickly as we can. But not every permit holder currently has the requirements. Uh, At this point, I'm guessing about 60 percent of our permits have a requirement telling them that they should be implementing restrictions right now.
9: And that includes Bill Ricca. The town's permit was updated in 2010 and allows it to pull water directly from the Concord River, which has been hit especially hard during this dry season. Just next door in Tewksbury, however, the town pulls its water from the Merrimack River. Tewksbury's permit is not scheduled for a review for at least another two years. In the meantime, Lavange says plenty of communities this summer are enacting self-imposed rules, and those all add up to the highest number of statewide water use restrictions he's ever seen.
8: We have about 110 permits that require it now, and we have 170 systems doing restrictions. So you know people are doing it without us telling them they have to so it, it is far more significant than we've seen in the past
9: standing on the banks of the slow moving concord river abdul al-khatib head of bill Ricca's dpw points to a water stain on a nearby cement slab the mark indicates the river's normal height uh,
5: you could see where how low it is right now you probably have about uh, an average of three feet drop from a normal uh, level.
9: And not only is the water low, but it's also nearly stagnant, which presents another set of problems when it comes to treatment. Al-Khatib says higher levels of manganese and iron in the still water make for a more complicated process, and the town is now treating the water as though it were from a lake instead of a river.
5: It makes you think about and start to plan what if there's not much rain in the next month or two, what do you do?
9: Despite the town-by-town town variations, officials at the state level are asking all residents to consider conserving water. Dan Seeger is assistant secretary at the state's Office of Energy and Environment.
5: I think when it comes to this level of lack of precipitation around the state, it's time for everybody to sort of do their part and cut down on their water use at a personal level, you know, regardless of what the um, restrictions that are within a certain you know, town's permit versus, versus a neighboring town.
1: That report is from WBUR's Shannon Dooling. She tells me that now the town of Tewkesbury has instituted their own voluntary water ban. Coming up from acres of Maine woods to an underwater mountain range, conservationists are asking the outgoing president to put his pen to work creating national monuments. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. If you've ever visited the North Woods of Maine, you know that it's one of the most wild places you'll ever see. Now nearly 90,000 acres adjacent to Baxter State Park has been designated by President Obama as the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument not quite a national park, but still protected lands for hiking and fishing and hunting and cross-country skiing. It's land that was donated by Roxanne Quimby, the founder of Burt's Bees, the personal care company, and this has been her family's plan for some time. But the area has also been part of the logging and paper company history of this region, and many locals and state politicians have fought against the designation, hoping that someday the paper mills would return. And some locals, like Sam Houston, don't trust the federal government to be good stewards of the land.
8: Yellowstone, it's a zoo. I've been to Glacier National Park. It's a zoo. Not as bad as Yellowstone. And they can't fund and take care of the parks they got now because they're in debt. They couldn't keep an ant farm running. Just keep the hell, the government, out of this state. We don't need them. Let the state run the things.
1: Nick Sambetes Jr. covers the Northwoods for the Banger Daily News. I asked him if the news of the president's order has
8: sunk in. It's beginning to. Uh, there are still people opposing
1: it, and that opposition will likely continue for a long time. Uh, there are still a lot of suspicions about the, national, the federal government and how this thing is going to have an impact on the area. It's also an area that strongly believes that the, the forest products industry will rebound from the loss of the paper industry. These people were among, for generations, some of the greatest papermakers in the world. And the industry, the shock the industry went through is similar to the steel industry in Pittsburgh. Uh, The industry is a fraction today of what it was generations ago, except in this case, it happened much later. Susan Sharon of Maine Public Radio has been covering this dispute for years. I asked her first to describe the place.
4: Well, it's 87,500 acres in the heart of Maine's North Woods. And that's probably a large enough amount of acreage for people to picture, but it's twice the size of Acadia National Park, if that helps. And what it looks like is a forest. It's it's a forest that has been cut in previous years by the timber industry, but it has spectacular views of Mount Katahdin, Maine's tallest peak and lakes and and rivers in the distance. On the property itself um, are ponds and the east branch of the Penobscot River, which is very famous because, if you'll recall, that's where Henry David Thoreau started writing about the Maine woods um, in the the 1840s when he visited at least three times. So he called it um, the place with a continuousness of forest, and that really hasn't changed much since he visited.
1: So how exactly did this designation happen? I mean, how long was it being considered by the government?
4: A Maine Woods National Park has been under consideration for more than two decades, but originally a much larger parcel of land. And how this came to be is, is kind of a complicated but interesting story involving the founder of the Burt's Bees Personal Care Products Company, Roxanne Quimby. She sold that company and used her wealth to start buying and conserving land, and uh, Always her vision was that someday she would be able to give her holdings to the National Park Service in time for its 100th birthday, which happened just last week. So she has been buying this land. She always hoped to do it. She met with resistance early on. This was beginning in the early 2000s, in 2001. And um, she, she met resistance early on for the National Park idea, which requires an act of Congress. And so eventually she switched over to the idea of a national monument, which can be done by an order of the president. But I should say also that, you know, this has been an idea that people have kind of changed their minds about. There is some local opposition, but people have come on board as the paper industry in Maine, the forest products industry has been in transition with a downsizing of paper mills, paper mills closing, and hundreds of jobs lost. So there was hope that This idea could employ more people and could be a boost for the region economically.
1: Of course, a lot of the opposition that still remains, and I've heard from some of your reporting, is from people who just don't like the idea of the federal government stepping in and doing this. Some people have told you, look, if it was the state of Maine protecting these woods, it'd be one thing, but I just don't want the feds in there. Is that still something that's widely held by a lot of people who live in that area?
4: Well, I would say, you know, there's there's different ways to characterize the opposition. First of all, local businesses are wholeheartedly in favor of this. The, the Chamber of Commerce supports it. And I think, you know, there, there's been a lot of focus on the opposition because, yes, it's very vocal. And there are people who are very concerned about what kind of regulations might come down from the federal government, whether there's some kind of agenda to create an even larger national park someday. Uh, and and also because they think it's going to somehow chill the forest products industry which as i said was is in transition but so yes i think that it that it is sort of a fear of the unknown but also a clinging to the past because of this region's history in the forest products industry. And this was the the east branch of the Penobscot River was a place where river drivers, you know, the, the, the trees were cut down and sent floating in huge rafts down the, the river to the mills and the towns below. So there's a clinging to the past and a fear of change. And I, I think that's part of it, too. But we, we have seen, you know, recently when the National Park Service director came for a visit and there were hearings, just... Uh, hundreds of supporters bust in to testify from around Maine in support of this idea. People uh, beyond the local region really, really love it. And even in a local hearing recently with, with one of our congressmen, it was overwhelming local support. So I think it is starting to change.
1: So what happens next? There has been some talk that this opens the door for a future national park here. Is that what
4: people are looking to for the Maine woods at some point? You know, um, Two things about that. Uh, First of all, I think the fear is that it will become an even larger national park, but the Park Service Director dispelled that notion in his recent visit. But yes, there are people, including Roxanne Quimby, who has told me in the past that she would love to see this as a national park just because it would mean that there was public buy-in, you know, that the, that Congress supported it and people pushed for it. And and that is, after all, the way Acadia National Park was started in, in Maine on the coast. It, it was started with private land donations, began as a monument, and then became a national park. But for all intents and purposes, both are managed the same way by the National Park Service, and they and they still have the same benefits. It's just the the character of the designation, and it may eventually, depending on how things go, there may be members of Maine's congressional delegation who who think it would be nice to have it as a, as a national park. But we'll have to see. That's
1: Maine Public Radio's Susan Sharon. To see pictures of the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument, go to nextnewengland.org. Now, there's another part of New England that's being considered as a national monument, and it's even more remote than those main woods. The New England Coral Canyons and Seamounts area, about 150 miles off the coast, is, according to the congressional letter written to the president, a world of canyons that rivals the Grand Canyon in size and scale and underwater mountains that are higher than any east of the Rockies. Now, the lawmakers, led by Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal, want the president to use the 1906 Antiquities Act to preserve the area, much like President George W. Bush did when he designated a similar monument in 2006 off the coast of Hawaii. President Obama just expanded that monument. But, much like in Maine, many in the commercial fishing industry are fighting the designation and questioning the use of the act by the president.
3: The Antiquities Act was passed in 1904 to give Teddy Roosevelt the authority to address problems with prospectors uh, ransacking American Indian historical locations. And at the time, there was a big market for those kind of artifacts. Uh, The concept behind the Antiquities Act was to give the president the ability to act more quickly than Congress could in those specific and difficult situations where An antiquity was in danger of being harmed. And the act specifically says that it should, when it is uh, invoked, it should be invoked only on the smallest possible area necessary to protect the antiquity in question.
1: That's Bob Vanoss. He's executive director of the fisheries industry group Saving Seafood. I asked him, aside from the use of the Antiquities Act, what specific concerns his members had.
3: There are several other laws in place that already protect many of the resources of concern. The Magnuson-Stevens Act, it regulates our fisheries and has an elaborate system of councils around the country with public consultation that allow those who may be regulated and other stakeholders including environmentalists to air their concerns as the regulations are developed. There is also the Marine Sanctuaries Act which provides for the creation of sanctuaries at sea. For example, the Stellwagen Bank Marine Sanctuary off the coast of Cape Cod in New England was created using that act. And then there's other acts like the Marine Mammal Protection Act. The concern here is the question of the appropriateness for the president as one of our groups, the Fishery Survival Fund that represents the U.S. scallop, the Atlantic scallop industry. As they wrote in a letter, should, should this kind of... Should these other acts and these public procedures be overridden with, as they said, the stroke of an imperial pen? Should the president, with nothing more than his signature, override all of those acts and all of that public consultation? And that's really the heart of the concern. Are there specific
1: economic concerns that you have? I mean, would this, in some substantive way, change,
3: alter, harm the fishery as we know it today? Oh, absolutely. There are a number of there are a number of important uh, species that that are fished there and have been fished there for decades and decades without harm to this area. And that's really one of the questions: Why is it necessary to take this action if fishing for species such as red crab, swordfish, tuna, squid have all taken place over these locations for years? And as far as the economic uh, potential economic cost, the difficulty is that the White House hasn't actually come out with any proposal. However, you know, really one example is the red crab industry, which is out of New Bedford and has been developed sustainably. It's uh, it's exactly everything that environmentalists and ocean proponents have said we should do. It's taken a species that historically was not on people's dinner plates, uh, was once underutilized. It's now been developed. It's been fished sustainably and without harm to the ocean now for for decades and yet this is one of the fisheries that might be very seriously harmed and a hundred jobs in new england could evaporate
1: so that's what some of the fishermen think about this monument idea what does the national resources defense council they helped get this in front of congress what do they think about this well here's brad sewell he's director of the fisheries and atlantic ocean program there
8: well, you know, it is a spectacular ocean place. Uh, it, uh, it has canyons uh, that rival those in the American Southwest, uh, but instead of being festooned with cacti and sagebrush, they uh, grow these deep-sea cold-water corals uh, in all colors of the rainbow that can be 15 feet high. Uh, The area also has seamounts, which are uh, extinct volcanoes uh, that jut up from uh, the deep ocean floor. And similarly, these are festooned with with corals. And the uh, the waters above these uh, ocean features are inhabited by an array of marine species, some are, you know, iconic, uh, like the endangered sperm whale uh, and the Atlantic puffin. This is the wintering area for the Atlantic puffin. And, and some, uh, were, just, we're just now discovering these obscure, frequently sort of bizarre-looking deep-sea species uh, that uh, we're discovering as we go down into these places with uh, underwater vehicles.
1: What is the specific threat to this area that you hope uh, a designation of this type will will protect it from?
8: Well, you know our oceans uh, are under siege from all sorts of threats from uh, from pollution to climate change to oil and gas development. Uh, and you know this area is no exception. while it's uh, fairly remote, it's about one hundred and fifty miles uh, east of Cape Cod. It, uh, it still will be subject to the march of history, and, and, and this has demonstrated that we continue to mine, drill, fish uh, deeper and deeper in the ocean uh, as time goes on. So while uh, it's currently pristine, uh, it won't stay that way, and this is exactly the time to, to, to get in and preserve it in perpetuity for you know, all Americans for future generations.
1: Some of the fisheries people that I've talked to who oppose this move say that while the the bottom of the ocean with these canyons and corals uh, may indeed be something worth protecting, their fishing has gone on at the top of the water for many years and is quite productive. And the question is, do you need to protect this land from all fishing as well as all undersea development in order to protect the things that you find important here
8: well this uh, you know this isn't this isn't just about fishing as as I said this is about uh, you know all threats and providing permanent protection from all threats to this special ocean place as it um, actually turns out this is really probably one of the least, it may be the least uh, actively fished area in the U.S. Uh, Atlantic Ocean. It is very remote. It's very rugged. It's very deep. There is a small amount of uh, fishing, uh, and there are some indications of of harm from that fishing. We see uh, heavy uh, deep-sea uh, traps uh, down uh, on top of corals. Uh, but but again this isn't uh only about preventing harm from current threats it's about preventing harm for future from future threats
1: is there a way to come to some sort of an accommodation for the for the fishing industry that does exist in this area so that they can continue in whatever small way fishing for say red crab takes place there um while the the bottom of the ocean is designated in this way so that it is it's protected from from mining or other commercial interests.
8: Well, yeah, I think that there, there are ways of uh, designing the protections uh, to make sure that we uh, make it science-based, that we are uh, trying to protect uh, what makes this area special. It's marine mammals up in the water column, uh, along with uh, the deep-sea corals that are on the bottom, uh, and that... Uh, there are ways of, of doing that that will allow the fishing industry uh and i'm certain that this will happen the fishing industry to continue to be a important economic engine for the region uh if you know in fact it it's scientists think that uh if we can protect ocean places it'll sort of increase uh ecological resilience to things like climate change and will actually uh, result in these refugia for fish that we catch in other places allow them to uh, increase in population size and, and flourish and then spill over into places where they, can be, uh, where they can be caught.
1: That's Brad Sewell. He's director of the Fisheries and Atlantic Ocean Program for the NRDC. You want to see what it looks like down there under the sea? Well, we've got pictures at our website, nextnewengland.org. I kind of want to go. Coming up, it's back to school for the children of the migrant workers who harvest Maine's blueberry crop. It's next. This is Next, I'm John Dankowski. September means one thing for most kids in New England, an end to summer holidays and the start of classes. But for some, the school year isn't that straightforward because their parents chase the seasons from Texas to Maine, harvesting vegetables, picking apples, and raking blueberries. The federally funded Migrant Education Program tries to fill some of the gaps left by a life on the road. Jennifer Mitchell from Maine Public Radio has our story.
0: It's early, shortly after 6 a.m. in Millbridge. Eight young children, too sleepy to misbehave, are going for a bone-shaking ride on a big yellow school bus to nearby Harrington, where the kids meet for class. At the front of the bus, keeping watch, is a young woman holding a clipboard.
8: I'm Tarsis Rodriguez, and I am the bus aide, as well as the 10 and 11-year-old co-teacher.
0: It's Rodriguez's first year with the Blueberry Harvest School. As co-teacher, she will help the kids with their lessons, but more than that, she wants to be there for any migrant child who just needs to talk, whether in English or in Spanish. Feeling displaced, she says, can be hard.
8: My parents are immigrants. They're from Central America, and I'm a first-generation born. And, you know, going to school in the West Coast in California, where I'm from, was very difficult. um, And the teachers I did meet throughout my life that really did make an impact made all the difference. And I felt like maybe someday I might do that for someone else.
0: While they attend class, their parents are busy bringing in Maine's $75 million wild blueberry harvest. Some are Spanish speakers, but most of the raking is done by the region's native Mi'kmaq communities, who make the hours-long journey from Nova Scotia and New Brunswick to stay in the workers' camp in nearby Dublois, where the bus stops next. Another 10 or 12 kids get on, and we rattle on down the road to Harrington Elementary School, where breakfast is the first item on the agenda. Here in the cafeteria, egg and cheese sandwiches, cereals, fruit, and milk are on offer, but the kids are most interested in the reporter's microphone.
8: Hi, my name's Curtis.
0: You know
2: what
4: you're doing today? I'm going yep. to the beach. Yeah.
0: The whole school is going on a science field trip to Roque Bluff State Park to learn about sea life. It's a trip that five-year-old Sam, whose home language is Mi'kmaq, is looking forward to. He says he wants to find a big bucket so he can collect seashells. And your parents right now? My mom is working at the Sam has three siblings at the school and two others who are staying at camp to help their mother with the raking. Migamah teacher Peggy Clement says she's never seen so many kids in one summer, with about 100 or more per day reporting for school. A couple of years ago, that number was somewhere around 80. Parents, she says, are becoming more aware that the program exists. And Clement also has a personal reason for getting involved with the school. As a child, she worked every summer in the Barrens.
4: And that's how we earned our, let's say, our school clothes and stuff we needed for going back to school in the fall. And it's hard, like, you know, when you travel, especially when you're a child. But, yeah. as you know, as children, they have to go with their parents.
0: The Blueberry Harvest School is part of the federally-funded migrant education program offered year-round. The majority of Maine's participants come for three weeks in August to bring in the berries. Others work in a broccoli fields.
4: I don't think that Maine has a full appreciation for the role that migrant workers play in the natural resource economy and for how challenging the lifestyle is.
0: Ian Yaffe directs Mano & Mano, a Millbridge-based nonprofit that runs the Harvest School program for the Maine Department of Education. Families, he says, should not have to choose between a livelihood and education.
4: I think Maine is a stronger place um, because of this and because of these families who um, who are coming here to help feed us all.
0: The school buses drive nearly 300 miles each day. The teachers coordinate three weeks of lesson plans and classes for ages 3 through 13. Breakfast, lunch, and snacks are dished out by a brigade of canteen workers. And then there are the field trips. Back on the bus, en route to their day out, two girls from different villages in Canada have been singing songs in Mi'kmaq, comparing their language to that of a Passamaquoddy girl sitting near them who hails from Indian Township. A few minutes later, all the kids are on the beach, peering into tidal pools and playing educational games
4: know about this animal. Oyster. Oyster.
0: When the harvest is over, many will return to Canada. Others will leave Maine to wherever their parents' next job takes them.
4: Pearls. Pearls.
1: That's Jennifer Mitchell from Maine Public Radio reporting. We wanted to find out more about these workers who travel up and down the coast, raking blueberries and bringing in other crops. Jorge Acero is the state monitor advocate for migrant and seasonal farm workers in Maine. He helps the workers navigate issues around wages, housing, and discrimination. Jorge, welcome to Next. My pleasure. We just heard a story about some of the children of migrant workers who are working in the blueberry fields in Maine. And I guess I'll start by asking you, how many of these workers travel with their children up to Maine to work?
5: It's hard to put a number on, on the families exactly. Uh, it's a combination of families. There could be... Well, over 200 families that travel with kids, um, but it's a mixture. Uh, there are two groups, primarily of migrant and seasonal farm workers, that uh, come to Maine uh, that, uh, that are family centric, if you will. Uh, one group is actually Mi'kmaq and Native Nationals, uh, Canadian Native Nationals related to the Passamaquoddy. So many of them have been coming down for generations, let's say, to rake blueberries as groups and families and extended families. And then the rest, uh, the remainder, are resident U.S. uh, migrant workers that live in Florida or in other other parts of the state or um, in other states. And most of them tend to be of Hispanic background, uh, Mexican background, but some are from Central America now and so on.
1: So you, you did this survey of migrant and seasonal farm workers. What are some of the things you learned about this group that maybe stuck out to you?
5: well the the fact that they really uh do make a great effort to uh to uh, travel great distances in order to find um uh economically viable work that that they can make a lot of money in a short time and the blueberries is a perfect example of that So some of these families, for example, will leave um, and travel what's called the eastern migrant stream from Florida or from Georgia or Mississippi and follow the Atlantic seaboard, if you will, and uh, pick crops along the way. And the blueberry season, if you know, is just such a short uh, season beginning, say, the first uh, day of August – and could end by the third, the end of the third week in August, um, a good raker can make very, very good money. And if you have a family of rakers, uh, they can bring in some fairly good money, a lot of money in a very short period of time.
1: But it's very hard work. I mean, j- just from watching some films of what blueberry raking looks like, it doesn't look like uh, an easy way to make a living.
5: It's not an easy way to make a living, and people uh, are exhausted at the end of the day. I, I think it's not necessarily the love of the work, but the need to do the work that pushes them, and also just the desire to um, to make the money in order to, you know, have a padding for the for the winter that's coming up. So it, obviously, it, it's worth it for them.
1: I will ask you, sir, that one of the things that we've talked about a lot in our program as we've tried to cover uh, things that make New England unique is that all three of the northern New England states, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, are in some ways defined by the fact that they have one of the smallest uh, minority populations in the entire Northeast. I guess I'm wondering, in talking to these workers and, and also to the people who work the farms, how you feel as though these, these regular migrant workers, many of whom are coming from uh, Latin American countries, how they they fit into the the life and the culture of Maine for the small time that they're here, and how the locals in the area accept them?
5: Well, you know, that's a good question, and uh, and it's a very good observation. Uh, I think that they're very comfortable. Most people are, are comfortable. Partly, one has to take into account that they do stay in labor camps, that are provided by employers and, and most of the labor camps are fairly remote. Now, not that that's keeping them separated or a buffer, because they do um, get into their vehicles and drive to the nearest uh, grocery store, the nearest convenience store, and so on. Uh, but, you know, in the beginning of the raker season in Washington County, in the two largest communities, um, uh, the Four Corners area, Columbia Falls uh, uh, and also in Millbridge, the two largest grocery stores there put up a huge uh, uh, sign on their marquee saying, in both English and Spanish, they say, welcome rakers, bienvenidos requiadores. In fact, they even made up that word, I think. I mean, that <laughs> requiadores is not a, a Spanish word, but, but it's been made up from... It's Spanglish, so to speak. So it's welcome rakers. Why? Because, you know, they, they inject a lot of money into the local economy while they're there. They spend a lot of money. They eat at the restaurants. They, eat, they shop in the grocery stores. Um, and they're good people. Um, and so overall, I think that there's a, a, a harmony in, in, the, um, in their coming in. Because, and, and they're needed. You know, the bottom line is that they're needed because there aren't enough local workers to bring in the blueberry crop.
1: Mr. Ossero, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Maraska. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. This is already the sixth episode of our new show, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England, or you can send us an email to next at wnpr.org. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Broadcasting Network, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.